Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the anime podcast. If you're an avid anime reader, you may have read our most recent analysis of the consolidation market a couple of issues ago, so that is exactly what we're going to discuss today. And I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by two experts on that topic today. Chris Budd is here. He's the chairman of Aviation Finance and sold his business to his staff via an employee ownership trust earlier this year. And I'm also pleased to say we're joined by Peter Trotman, who advises advisors on the sale of their businesses. Hello to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Um, now, put your hands up if you're a fan of music. <laughs> I can see two hands <laughs> in the actually air. Actually, put your hands up. Two hands in the air. Um, nobody comes on this podcast and gets away without doing a quiz. So with the theme of sales and consolidation in the air, I thought tangentially we would do a quick music sales quiz. What's the, what's the prize? The prize is our endearing... Our endearment and eternal respect. <laughs> so is that it? Oh, okay. The eternal business, the eternal <laughs> respect. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, are you ready? Yeah. Good. Number one, uh, question. Who was the top selling artist in the US last year? Anyone with sort of youngish kids should know the answer to this. Is it just your answer on this one, is it? Yeah. Head to head. Oh, head to head. Well, I'm going to go first. for Taylor Swift. Absolutely correct, oh. Peter. Oh. <laughs> One I told you, you. Anything, anything after 1992 and I'm knackered. It was indeed Taylor Swift. The album Reputation sold 1.9 million copies. Second place, Ed Sheeran with Divide, 1.1 million. And third place was Kendrick Lamar, whose Damn album sold 910,000. Ed Sheeran's auntie lives in the next village to me. Does that count for anything? Uh, that's a very interesting fact, Chris. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't get you an extra point. Question two, chip in. In the, in the last 10 years, spending on vinyl records has outstripped digital download sales. But in which year did that actually occur? 2015. Oh, close. Oh, go 2016. Peter again. Oh, for God's sake, this is off. It's 2016. More than 3.2 million LPs were sold in 2016, an increase of 53% on 2015. And the highest number since 1991, when Simply Red's Stars album was the best-selling release on sale. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah. I do, yeah. Do yeah. you? Cracking album. I was minus two years old. Yeah. In, yeah. In well, I was only about five at the time. <laughs> Question three. Who has sold more records, Kenny G or Kenny Rogers? Kenny Rogers. Well, I'll have to go Kenny G then. It's Kenny G. Oh, Chris yes, I'm back. I'm back in. Chris is back in the game. It's Kenny G. As of 2017, the curly-haired soprano saxophonist had sold a whopping 48 million units, beating Kenny Rogers, who only sold 47.5. Coward of the County is one of my favourites. It makes me cry every time. Have to say. Does it actually? Oh, yeah. Kenny G only had the one song. <laughs> have either of you seen the scene in Wayne's World 2 where Garth is having a filling while listening to Kenny G? No. I'll leave uh, you to decide which of those is more painful. Uh, moving swiftly on. Um, number four, who sold more records, ACDC or Pink Floyd? ACDC. Pink Floyd. It's Pink Floyd. Oh. Peter, again, you're absolutely on fire. Dark Side of the Moon was in the charts for something like 10 years, wasn't it? In the album charts, something like that. This guy knows yeah. his stuff. Uh, the concept prog giants take ninth place in the list of biggest selling artists of all time with 75 million units. ACDC only landed 72 million. Rubbish. Just goes to show you've got to make you know concept albums if you really, really want to get in. In fact, there's a joke about ACDC uh, having uh, come up with the... Um, what was it? The longest album of all time. It lasts 19 albums. <laughs> Some, yeah. Something like that. Yeah, very good. Number very five. Good. Who sold more records, Bob Dylan or the Backstreet Boys? I'm going to go for the uh, Backstreet Boys. 
I'll have to go Bob Dylan then. It's the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, you, the, the clue was in the question. You I love have asked, the Backstreet Boys, obviously, yeah. but I'm afraid to say that uh, they have outsold Dylan by a million units. Dylan, as of 2017, has 36 million in sales. The 90s Ultimate Boy Band got 37 million. I will go for influence over sales every time. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Are you I'd saying rather... that the Backstreet Boys haven't had an influence? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say not the same as Bob Dylan had. I think mm. that's probably... Um... I wait for the day where uh, the Backstreet Boys are, become Nobel laureates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are they still going? Uh, possibly a comeback on the horizon. Well, that, that, was, that, was, that wasn't about that Mark Wahlberg, was it? Was it? No, he was... Uh, he was... No, but he was at Marky Mark. He, Marky he did quite a few things before, yes. uh, before becoming an actor, yeah. perhaps. Some of them aren't worth discussing. Um, question six. Um, some of you may have been to the cinema recently. Uh, the film Bohemian Rhapsody tracks the rise and sort of fall of sensational operatic rockers Queen. Have you seen the film? Sensational operatic rockers. Where do you get yeah. this from? Uh, the question is, Chris, <laughs> is their song Don't Stop Me Now, which features in the film, currently in the top 100 or not? Uh, I've got a clue. I'll say yes. I would have gone yes, so I'll have to go no. It but, is yes, so yeah, Chris gets yeah. a point for that. Um, uh, as of yesterday, the Mercury, May, Deacon and Taylor hit was at 89 in the top 100. Wow. Like a walking newspaper. 48 yeah. years, no, 40 years after its release. Amazing, and I do remember its release, unfortunately. Yeah. Do you? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a great song. 40 years, 1978. Uh, and finally, I couldn't let you go without a question on my favourite band, the 1975, who are from Manchester. In 2014, beleaguered music publication NME declared that the 1975 were the worst band in the world. But did their follow-up second album in 2016 go gold? Yes, yes or no? Yes. No. It did. Uh, gold is, is album Matty status. In 1975. Is That's that, correct. Because my daughter went to see them and then they met Matty Healy on the tube on the way back. You're kidding me. And there was my daughter with the 14, so she had two mates, and my mum, her mum, my wife, and on the tube, and they got very excited because Matty Healy was sat opposite them. And so my wife said, excuse me, are you Matty Healy from the 1975? My daughter would like to say hello. You imagine a 14-year-old girl. Oh. <laughs> they, were, they were in tears. Yeah. They were, oh, it was, they got a couple of selfies. It was a real sweetie. Chris, I'm practically in tears hearing this story. <laughs> I've been trying for years to meet this man. He was and... a really, really nice guy. He couldn't have been nicer to them. Really? Yeah. Oh, bless him. Um, I might add that Enemy have just given their hotly anticipated new album five stars. It's due out in nine days. I'm I think very we're excited. all excited. Quite yeah, a absolutely. turn now. Shall we move on to the topic no, good. for this podcast? Um, just Well, just before we do that, it's actually 4-3 in the scores. Peter, I know you were underconfident about this, but you've actually beaten Chris, well done, a self-styled music expert. Lost to a better man. 4-3. Um, we'll move on. Um, we're talking about the sale of businesses, succession planning uh, this week. Um, I have a few questions, and I'll start with you, Peter, if I, might, okay. if I may. Um, we were talking about this before Chris arrived. Chris was late. Um, lots of IFAs are selling up, and we know sort of anecdotally that it's not always working out and it's not always easy. And um, where might some IFAs be going wrong, do you think? In selling up or in selling, up or or selling in the process? Or um, I, I think there's, there's several areas. And, and, and the first area is that the, the, uh, some advisors don't actually have the information. So they don't, they undersell, potentially undersell their business. Okay. So uh, they need to look at, uh, you know, where the age ranges of clients, where the funds are. 
you know, etc. Client holding uh, because the the marketplace is getting more, I would say, sophisticated in what they're looking at, mm. uh, and I think some advisors need to sort of do a, a sort of a complete revamp, look at their business from the outside, and say, what, what can I, you know, make my, make my business? How can I make it uh, sellable? Or what's the, you know, what's going to look the best? Um, where they're going wrong in the marketplace? Well, there's are people out there or companies out there that may be the wrong uh, match mm. for their business. Mm. Uh, that might be due to they're going from a, an independent to a, a yeah. restricted environment. It may be the um, advisor, it's, it's the wrong environment, as in it's they're going from, they're used to dealing with this advisor and they've got a completely different advisor spread. Um, but there are lots of areas and what I try and do is try and match uh, the individual with the company. Uh, and, and we try and look at companies I deal with, they actually get the advisor that's going to be taking on the client base to actually go and meet the advisor so he, he can actually see who's going to be actually dealing with his clients. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, some of the companies I deal with, they actually um, give the advisor uh, an option to say, you know, meet two or three advisors from this company mm -hmm. and he can actually pick which is right for him. So there's a lot more to do. The, the whole thing about people just, you know, selling up, I, will, I would say is don't take the first offer necessarily, mm. uh, have a look round. But uh, the old, the final adage is I say to everybody is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably, it is. probably is. And you get advisors say, well, I've been offered this. And, and, and I say, well, if you can get that, then take it. But mm. I would say there's always some small print or caveats mm. behind it. So before Chris arrived, we were talking about the ethics of selling and doing yes. right by clients. I want, this is something I want to ask Chris specifically because, Chris, you sold Ovation Finance early this year to your staff uh, via an EOT, an Employee Ownership Trust. Um, do you believe that business owners have a sort of moral duty to sell to their staff rather than taking the, you know, the money and running, so to speak? No. To be honest, I don't think I would want to suggest uh, that, tell other people what to do. Okay. If somebody wants to just take the money and run, that's entirely up to them. Um, uh, clients can always leave the new advisor and go and join somebody else that's more right for them. It fits mm. the wrong sale. You know, that's the risk you're taking. Um, I would say, never mind the moral obligation, it's just a better thing to do for them. Mm. This is the thing that I've been trying to tell everybody about Employee Ownership Trust. It sounds like a really lovely, generous thing to do. Actually, it's not. It's good commercial sense. Mm. You sell to the trust at an independent market value. So you get a market value for your business. Mm. Um, and you get to leave a legacy, so it's you, you get the best of both worlds. So you can you can sidestep that moral issue by deciding that it's a good thing to do for you anyway, mm. <laughs> and have the moral high ground while you're at it. Mm. That is the best of both worlds. Um, Peter, I was intrigued to hear what you're saying about valuation. Chris, mm. you just mentioned the valuation issue. Um, you're a small business. Uh, you maybe have one other advi advisor, or you're a sole trader. You have a couple of staff. How do you actually go about valuing your business? How does that work? Because say you might not have that, yeah. you know, yeah. if the first offer that comes in is, is what you think your business is worth and you take it and it turns out to be wrong or not to work out, mm. um, there's clearly a problem there. So what's the best way for advisors to know what their business is, business is worth? I would, I would say it, uh, before they uh, go to the market is, is to uh, try and, you know, I talk to a lot of advisors and some know better than me mm. uh, what what the value of their business is 
uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but unfortunately <laughs> that is true. So, um, you know, what I would say is look at what they, they need to look at what their clients are. They need to decide what they want for themselves and their clients, because there, there's a bit of a sea change recently. And, and I have had advisors, certainly in some of the last few deals I've, I've done recently, uh, the advisor could have got a better deal financially. Mm. However, he opted to take the deal that was right for his clients, mm. uh, which is very honourable and very good. The other thing is as well, and um, which is also, it's peace of mind. So mm. somebody might come along with a bigger checkbook. However, are you confident that they're going to deliver on the second and third payments? Yeah. Are you confident about those second and how are they going to deal with your clients? And I think a lot of them now, some or say a lot, some of the advisors are looking at it and saying, well, actually, do you know what? I'd rather go with this company. I know they're going to deliver on the second and third payments because they've got X amount of pounds behind them. Mm -hmm. They are a high street name or, or they're a name that I can, uh, that I know my clients are going to be comfortable with mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, not only have I got the issue of telling my clients I'm going to be retiring, but I've also got the issue of saying, well, I'm going to be retiring and uh, I'm, I'm going to put you with this company that you've never heard of. Yeah. So you've got two you've got two hurdles. Whereas if you've got one hurdle and say that this is a company and it's you can promote it as a, a step up. So I've given you a really good service over the last 25, 30 years, but this company are gonna actually be a, be able to you know yeah. carry on with They've that. They've got the mileage. And got the mile the money and the mileage and they can yeah. look after you. And mm. um, one of the things we you want to say to me, yeah, just about the valuation. A, a, a corporate finance um, a friend of mine, I'm sure Peter would agree with this, uh, once said to me that the reason that when business sales fail, mm. the reason for the fail, the most common reason, is vendor expectation. Mm. People mm. tend to yeah. think that their business is worth than somebody else thinks it's worth. Mm. So when somebody else comes along and offers you amount, and you were expecting a different amount, you've got a problem. Mm. There's an extra problem there, which is the um, publicised value of businesses. Can we put it that way? So, we, by the way, Ollie, you won't do any more podcasts ever in your life where people will tread more carefully than Peter and I are going to do in this podcast. Yeah, um, let's put it this way. A lot of publicised deals happen at a certain amount, but that's not necessarily the amount of money that the person selling their business ends up with in their bank account. Absolutely. So there is an expectation created that this is what my business is worth, X times renewals, mm -hmm. when actually that's not what it's worth at all because not that's not the amount of money that was eventually paid. Yeah. So... If you want to know what your business is worth, uh, take a, took a few steps. Uh, you can get an accountant to value it. You can get you can pay somebody to do an independent valuation. Mm. Um, if you've got a company offering you something, one of my tips is go and I'll speak to some of the people that have sold to them mm. a few years ago. Mm. Find out what their experience was like. You'll soon find out who are the good guys. Mm. Mm. Um, one thing that we, uh, my colleague Tally and I, discussed in uh, the article I mentioned earlier. Um, was about the, the generational issues facing the IFA profession. Um, uh, one of the people that we quote in this article that sat in, sat in front of me is um, uh, it's Adrian Chandley, who runs Premier Wealth Management. And he says that when the bank, the high street banks, pulled out of financial planning uh, because of regulatory pressure, it sort of it, it, it led to a, um, a complete loss of uh, a generation of potential leaders within mm. the IFA profession who could have sort of stepped up in their 30s and 40s to become, you know, the chief executives or the directors of these firms. And that in turn is causing them to sell up. How big an issue do you think that is? That is? Or, or 
other issues like PI. I, no, I think that's a really big issue. There's a bit of a gap, isn't there, of um, 35 to 45 year olds. Huge, um, huge in the marketplace. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, put, you know, uh, there is a lot of advisors of a certain age. I mean, I'm, I'm on film 58. And actually, I probably work in a, one of the few environments that the majority of, of, of uh, people I speak to actually are older than me, <laughs> which in any other industry, that would be a bit strange, you know, yes. but, but um, you know, when you're talking to advisors, principals of businesses, um, and, and look, I'm not here to say you must retire at 65 or you must retire at 70. If you want to go on and on, then, then that's up to you. Um, but uh, what that does go on to, that takes you into another area, which we've touched on before the meeting, of, of age of clients. But we, I mean, that's, we can park that one. But yeah, I mean, there's not the advisors there. Uh, the old, there's not also for, um, you know, con planning coming through. So, and, and also people have not had, been able to recruit people. I've, I've spoken to uh, advisors, principal, and they said, well, I want to, uh, you know, give my, well not give my business, sell my business to somebody, I want to bring somebody on. Yeah. They then take the business on, which, Chris is, which is a great idea. Um, however, Chris is in a, had a great business, or say ha still has, uh, with the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. These guys, a lot of them haven't got the infrastructure, and you go out now in the marketplace and get a quality uh, advisor, mm. you know, they're, they're just not there, hence all the academies now that are now hopefully bringing new blood into the industry, which we desperately need. And, and there is plenty of that. You know, the next-gen planners, um, there's some great people in there. They, they don't have the stripes yet. They haven't got the the, uh, the scars and the, you know, the war stories, but um, they will. But there's bright, you know, really good people coming through. Um, whether they're ready to take on and take over these businesses, sometimes yes, sometimes I'm not so sure, maybe a bit too young, but there's, there's plenty of hope there. But just touching, picking up something Peter uh, touched on there, I do, I speak to a lot of owners who have a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. And if there's one tip that I'm sure Peter would agree we would give to people is don't wake up one day and say, I think I want to sell my business and go off and think you can do it. You'll get a better value and an easier um, process if you spend a few years getting the business ready. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you've got a business which has got five or six self-employed IFAs all dealing with their own client bank, well, I'd probably argue you haven't really got a business at all. Mm. You know, Take some time to turn that into a proper practice that then has a value. And that takes a few years. You know, that's not something that happens overnight. Encourage those young people, put them in positions of responsibility, build up um, something that will be worth something a bit more. Um, it's, a, it's a much more fun, fun place to work and you end up with a business with a proper value. Mm. Um, professional indemnity insurance. Yes. Um, some advisors have been getting some letters in the post with some pretty startling numbers on what it's going to cost to renew. Absolutely. Uh, what are the consequences of that? I'll let either of you begin. Well, uh, I was going to say, I'm already seeing the uh, professional indemnity insurance, the, the, which, which I think is a thin end of the wedge. I think it's going to get bigger. Um, as an example, I spoke to a, uh, a principal this year, back in May. He was going to carry on for another few years. He then got back in contact with me in September, just had his renewal in, and it's gone up 10 times. Now, he paid it. But uh, that was a tipping point for him to bring his plans forward because he said, you know, if it goes up 10 times this year, if it goes to next year and it goes up another 10 times, then he's really just not worth 
carrying yeah. on. Um, the, the stories I've heard and, and things of uh, excesses on certain business going up to 150,000 per claim. Um, companies that are chartered companies struggling to get PI cover. Mm. Uh, Having we, to go to several different uh, Yeah, absolutely. I spoke to a, chap, a gentleman yesterday. I mean, they had to get an extension, 48 hour extension. Uh, quality firm, uh, been going for a long time. Uh, another firm, and you know, it, it goes on and on. And I think PI cover will, it, it, will, it will give you two options. Mm. It, people will either say, well, look, I've had enough. I will, I'm going to sell my business, retire. Or as a chap I spoke to yesterday, because he's uh, still only in his uh, 40s, late 40s, he is looking at the uh, appointed rep route, which is you know, unheard of really for, for a directly authorised firm. Do you think that's a phenomenon that's going to increase in sort of popularity? The, 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 I don't uh, think it's popularity, it's a lack of choice. It's, yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Yeah, You've got no choice. It's, it's, yeah, it's a, a salient yeah. point. Yeah. 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 My, yeah. my suggestion would be to anybody who's got PI issues is go and talk to the underwriter. One of the best things I ever did was go come up to up to big city uh, from Somerset and I had a, had a meeting with the underwriter and explained to him how ovation works and the, all the assumptions you're making when you're building up my premium. I want to just cast some light on these things and uh, it was it was absolutely fantastic. He understood. He listened, um, and it considerably reduced our premium the next year. Mm, because there was sort of a transformational. Moment yeah, because they're, they're going to assume that you're like the other companies who are doing dubious things. You know, mm. unless you go and tell them why uh, otherwise, and actually prove it. Yeah. You know, it's no you're just saying we're different. You've actually got to prove it. What are your processes? What can you? What evidence can you give to say you are a lower risk? Than another firm. Mm. So right, the um, the one thing that I thought of in in response to your sort of PI uh, point, Peter, was, you know, that that's going to make people panic. You know, mm. maybe not <laughs> they're not going to sell overnight, but they're going to think, ah, gosh, there's a ticking clock here. Yeah. Uh, with regards to what you said, Chris, about you know putting the time in the hard graph to think everything through properly and to to make some sort of big moves within the business to make it a sort of solid entity that's got real value. Yeah, over a course of two, three years before you sell. Um, you know, what's your message to anyone that might have had a bit of a panic about this and is sort of trying to sell quickly at this point? Well, if you're trying to sell quickly, that's not really my world. Um, I, it's too late, you know, if you, if you generally have no other choice. Yeah. Um, but if you can just wait a year or two, um, start to empower your young employees, start to give them a voice. Yeah. Um, actually, you know, that's what they want more than money. Um, they want culture over compensation, as uh, as Kirsty from Nucleus puts it. Yeah. A great, great expression. Um, when when young people are looking for new jobs now, it's culture and purpose, and having a voice and a say in their own. Those are the things that they're after. Yeah. Um, and in my experience, one of the hardest things for owners to do, and I put my own hand up here, is start to give up control. Mm. Handing over control yeah. to other people is a really difficult thing to do, which is why so many keep all the control until the last moment, then sell the client bank. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you can take a few years to transition control uh, to your next generation, then you will be able to walk away from it rather than jump away from it. Um, just practically speaking, that's really interesting. Um, can you give an example of like one thing that you did sort of at the start of that sort of handover process? You know, was it sort of? Uh, giving someone control of the investment committee or saying, you know, I'm not going to be here for this meeting. Would you, would you like to step up? 
Yeah, all, all of the above. I mean, there's loads of things. It took years. It took yeah, years. Sure. Um, because I found it hard to give up control of my, sure. my baby, the, the company I founded. Um, but yeah, uh, one day I said, I'm no longer going to be a member of the investment committee. Yeah, absolutely. That was one thing. Investments have really interested me. So that was cool. Yeah. Um, I formed a management team and uh, gave people different responsibilities. Started taking off my hats and giving them to other people, yeah. but properly left them to it. Not just saying that you will and then checking over their shoulder, but properly leaving them to it. Um, I went down to four days a week. Um, I started not coming in the office. Last year, I took all of August off, um, which was a massive moment for me. Um, but Adrian, what did I, you do? Oh, I had a ball. I wrote wrote books and and had time with the kids. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, but then I wanted to get back into it. I was re-energized when I came back. You know. So yeah, hand hand over control. Create and and in doing so, you will be creating a proper business. Mm. Peter, you parked the issue of Asian clients. Uh, yes, a couple of moments ago. Let's come back to that. Asian clients. What is the for a console in the consolidators crosshairs? You know, what are consolidators thinking about when they look at the client banks of these? businesses big or small well it, it goes back to the the advisor who decides to carry on um, and, and the average age um, this isn't written in stone but it's an average going rate is the advisor's age sort of three to five years either side the predominantly most of their clients will will be within that environment I mean there's going to be somebody who will come to me and say oh well my clients are all 20 years younger but okay that's a you know you're always going to get one that can prove different but that's so as advisors get older their client their top end clients the other you know get older from a consolidator point of view an acquirer they will look at the client base and and uh, the regulators very much looking at them and saying well look if you if you purchase, uh, you take on clients of a certain age, mm -hmm. they would come as vulnerable clients, uh, therefore you, uh, basically it's very much, um, you know, dare I say there's no margin, or you've got to be careful how you deal with clients like that. Do they, is it commercially viable? Probably not for them, if they do all the work. And then again, somebody's going to say, yes, there is. But anyway, that's by the by. Um, so they will say clients over a age, and certainly around the 75 mark. Is, is anything above that, then we're not interested. Uh, sometimes it's 70. Uh, some uh, companies look at a, a multiplier uh, of a, a lower scale when somebody is between the age of 70 and 75. Yeah. So they're really, as everybody is, looking for high net worth and predominantly most high net worth people in the UK are around probably late 50s into their 60s and into their 70s. So it's a very tight age range. Mm -hmm. and, and some advisors need to actually look at if they are going to go on another two years or another three years, what is their client base going to look at mm -hmm. from somebody looking to yeah. buy their business? Mm -hmm. You know, Is it best to look at it now and say, that's an optimum figure? Yeah. Or is that price going to start to come down the other side? Yeah. And does that mean that maybe people have to think about, you know, tactfully and politely, politely, you know, um, getting rid of some of their clients, so to speak? You know, no, I would, I would say the solution should be to start dealing with the kids. Mm. You know, intergenerational advice. Yeah. Um, Will somebody please think of the children? Is <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> how a love drive says in the Simpsons. Yeah. Uh, if you um, if you start involving, sorry to keep going on about this, but if you start involving your young people in the in, in the company, those young people, the yeah. young advisors, will start dealing with the children of the people that you brought on in the first place, yes. protecting the future of the business, matching up the generation. Exactly, yeah. And in mm. fact, you you may well find that um, the business is more attractive to your employees than it is to a consolidator. Mm. 
because the consolidator is is maybe simply charging carefully maybe simply looking at a block of money and the annual management figure how long will that last for whereas the younger advisors are looking at a financial planning practice with a 30-year career view therefore dealing with it completely differently it's very interesting you say that chris because that was going to be my next question and you can answer this as diplomatically as you wish uh, come on go for it let's get into the good are stuff consolidators still too obsessed with the numbers rather than the clients so too obsessed is a value judgment they can be as obsessed with it as they like. The question is, do I want to sell my business to them? So I wrote an article for you guys in the summer called Why Your Business Isn't Worth What You Think It's Worth. Fish and chip. Yes, the fish and chip deal. And for any listeners who haven't, um, aren't aware of that, what sometimes happens is uh, an acquiring firm can th- um, throw out the, the bait, go mm. fishing with a nice big number, a nice big multiple. Million and then, quid. Yeah, <laughs> and there's yeah. seven times renewals or whatever the figure might be. Yeah. And then they chip away at it, hence fish and chip, yeah. through due diligence or in some cases just simply not paying. Yeah. Now, yeah. I asked for companies or people who have sold um, following that, that article to come forward to me because I wanted to get a few um, stories. Mm. And I got a few, Ollie. Did you? I did. Would you like to tell them about it? I would be delighted. (laughs) Do you know what? I probably won't mention any names. That's (laughs) absolutely fine. Go ahead, Chris. The first one was really interesting because he got all that he expected. Really? So it can work. So it can work. No one is saying that all consolidators are bad. Yeah, sure. Um, and by the way, it's not just consolidators. There are, you know, other acquiring firms. So... um, so he got all that he wanted. He was promised an amount, and he got that amount at the end of the end of the of, of the agreed period. Brilliant. However, um, there were a couple of others who had very different stories to tell. The worst of them, after two years, the acquiring company simply stopped making payments. And when he went back and said, "I've got a contract," they said, "We don't care. Sue us." That flash office over there is where our solicitors live. Where do yours live, mate? Oh, and by the way, we know you haven't got much money because we haven't paid you very much. You probably can't afford it. So he was completely shafted, illegally. But there was nothing he could do to pursue it. Now, I would like to think that's a rarity and exception, Mm. um, although that particular company I do know has done a number of deals. Um, But I don't think that's the norm at all. But if that's happening out there, you've got to do something to find out if that's the sort of company you're dealing with. Mm. Um, I I don't think there are many of them. I keep stressing that. But if there's even one, you want to know that it's not the one you're dealing with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. From my side of the table, uh, yes, there are companies out there who I don't deal with. As a as a broker, as a I, I mean, I I do more than a, just broken the businesses because I do consulting work within the industry. Mm. However, uh, there are certain acquirers that I won't deal with, and quite interestingly, and, and, and advisors over the years have sort of said, "Well, why why don't you deal with that company?" And um, normally, it's a quite interesting way of doing it. If they start uh, trying to screw me around on my fee. Mm which I, my fee is no different than any other broker, whatever, then you've got to look at it and say, well, if they're going to do that to me, what are they going to do to the advisor? Because, you know, the old adage, leopard doesn't change its spots. There are issues there. That's why I like to deal with um, deals where it's a short time scale. It's possible for the advisor who's, who's selling his business. Um, I'm not a big fan of the extended by act where somebody comes along and says, I'll tell you what, we'll give you your advisor fee income over the next 10, 15 years um, because it's all fraught with issues. You know, how do you know if that company's still going to be going in seven years or five years or whatever? Mm. Um, and uh, I 
don't get involved with those type of deals. I, I just think they're fraught with issues. Um, I think it's all about keeping it simple mm. and, and also being able to say to a, a principal of a firm, um, you know, I have done deals with this company before. They've got a track record of delivering yeah. on their promise. Uh, and I can sleep at night knowing that that chap is, is you know, retired, his client's going to be looked after and he's going to get the money. Um, so there are some very good companies out there. However, I have to agree with Chris, there are one or two <laughs> who, um, yes, we... Perhaps we'll leave it at that yeah. on that question. <laughs> a follow-on is, you know, there'll be businesses out there that, that see the big consolidators and they think, I'm not going to sell to a big consolidator. I can see what's going to go wrong there, all the potential risks or dangers. Um, and therefore, I'm going to sell to a business in the local area that I know or have known for a few years. Um, are there any dangers in that situation that IFAs need to be wary of? Uh, my take on that, and again, it's I've examples, uh, quite a few examples. I'll give you one example that came, a chap decided, didn't want to sell to an acquirer, mm -hmm. decided he, he uh, met, got an arrangement with a, another firm locally. Uh, and the advisor very happy shook hands on it and it was fine and, and the chap was going to pay him on a on a ongoing uh, fee based percentage of his recurring income um, always going swimmingly and the guy was retired uh, and the guy who took on his business uh, had a health issue mm. serious health issue so but he contracted to pay this chap for 10 years mm. um, and he came to me and said look I'm in this position uh, it's all a bit of a mess because I've got to pay this guy, but I can't physically carry on the business. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I would say if you're going to go local, make sure um, that the A, they've got the advisors, because obviously it's no good if you just park your business with somebody and you've been dealing with that as advisor. Are they going to take on another advisor yeah. to look after your clients? Um, have they got the money? Um, you know, is the regulator going to bring something out in two years' time that all of a sudden your income that you thought you were going to get for the next 10 years is suddenly halved? Yeah. Uh, are they going to be able to afford PI in two years' time? So, you know, whilst looking at it, selling to a chap who's local and it's all very nice and kept in a very contained area, uh, there's so many outside forces that the local advisor is out of his control mm. um, so so yeah. to, to, to put that another way if I'm saying that the ideal thing is to take a few years and get your business ready if you don't have that option and you want to sell and you want to sell to somebody local make sure they have done that that you're selling to a business that's a business. So if you're selling to somebody else and they've got five self-employed people and they're gonna hand your clients out to those self-employed people I wouldn't do that mm -hmm. um, that would feel to me a little bit risky but if you, um, you know, there's a, there's, um, a well-publicised uh, merger locally to me, uh, to really good firms who have got really solid businesses, good people, and a really nice match. It can really work. I believe they even took a few years getting to know each other, thinking about it. So take your time, get to know this other firm, ask about their processes, you know, are they going to stick around? Are they a proper practice, a proper business? Mm. Um, just finally, um, 
Uh, before we started recording, we were discussing the Quilter interview that uh, I did with Paul Feeney, the CEO. Um, and why is that relevant to this podcast? Well, I'll tell you. Um, it's all about uh, the really small firms, which Quilter said were going to be losers in the next sort of five, ten years. That That's a really big firm, Quilter, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, just so, joking. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, you know, they're kind of a big deal, I guess. Um, so they said, you know, that the, the, the winners from the race to advise people would be, you know, your regional boutique players and your uh, successful consolidators, and that the people would lo that would lose out, explicitly lose out, would be your small firms. Has Quilter sort of tapped into something there where it's identified a group of businesses that aren't ready, to, that they're not? They're, they're servicing clients perfectly fine, but they're not, they don't have their businesses in the best shape possible. I don't whisper it quietly, but I don't think size is important. Mm. Um, I, I, so I would disagree that it's the small firm. It's the firm who is still transactional, mm. the firm who hasn't turned itself into a proper business, a proper practice with branding of the business and etc. That's they're the ones who are going to be um, attacked by robo advice. Mm. You know, you've got to be doing cash flow. You've got to be doing planning. You've got to be doing coaching to be a proper firm to survive. Um, that doesn't mean to say you can be a small firm. There are massive firms that don't do that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's whether you've got your business in the right shape, not whether not how big you are. Mm. Peter, do you think we'll be sat here in a year's time uh, looking at sort of yet more acquisitions that have come down the line and, and a few more disasters? Or do you think it's going to slow because of sort of regulatory fears? What are your I, thoughts on the future? Well, the future is, I agree with... Uh, the quilt of you uh, on small firms. But when I'm talking about a small firm, um, I'm talking sort of a sole trader, mm. directly authorised sole trader, yeah. who is of an age where he's not got any succession planning. He hasn't got the infrastructure. And to put it in now, it's a bit the, the horse is bolted. You know, it's, yeah. too, it's too late. So those type of individuals, um, their business is potentially uh, at risk because... Uh, you know, there's also a thing called health. And, and I talk to some advisors and they don't seem to take on that, you know, we, in, if, you, if you're of a certain age and you were in, in the old days when you used to be sell, you know, life insurance, and it would be, we'd have all these facts and figures on how many people would get a serious illness or critical illness, et cetera, et cetera, over a certain age. And obviously as you get older, that, that uh, narrows down. So those sort of guys, um, I think, they, they they will need to do something and they will need to do something sooner rather than later or I get some glib comments from one or two of these guys and they'll say well I'm just going to keep going until I drop and I'm thinking mm. I don't want to sell to an acquirer because I'm, I don't think that's right for my clients well, but on the same side my, my argument would be to them well why are you going to carry on till you drop that's not exactly good for your clients either mm. um, so the, the main thing, the thing at the moment that's coming through is the PI cover. Mm. I, I, if that gets, if we are seeing the thin end of the wedge and it does increase, then I think in a year's time, we're going to see a lot more movement in the uh, advice marketplace. But I think firms uh, the size of Chris and the way he's set it up, I think those sort of firms will only thrive. Mm. So I think the very, very small businesses will struggle potentially. I think the, the sort of the medium regional firms who offer quality uh, wealth management planning, 
they will they will thrive because they were just not you know they won't want to bit people don't want to uh, deal with a big company but if they've got a real quality company with some depth locally some of these regional for i mean chris bristol has got several few, few, good yeah, yeah, quality absolutely. what i would call you know five star uh, advice firms yeah. um and and they will they will be in a very good position going forward as, as by this chris has got his business set up there's one other um, type of firm, and, and it goes back to Peter Cummer about sole traders that maybe Quilter were referring to. There are um, quite a few, let's be honest, elderly white men, they tend to be, uh, who are used to earning quite a lot of money for not doing very much. Mm. Um, and I know of quite a few who would have, I don't know, 20, 30 million under management, charging 1%. Um, one gentleman said his approach to advice is he says he has an open door policy to advice. In other words, he doesn't actually do anything at all unless somebody calls him. He's got 30 million under management with two employees. He's earning a lot of money. So why would he sell his business? You know, those sorts of people are going to come under pressure, yes. And, and if that's what Quilter were referring to. I would very much agree with it. Um, if you've got a decent uh, business set up, which is a real business with procedures and workflows, etc. And, and culture. You've got the culture, absolutely really strong principles. Um, and you've got a young um, employees who are starting to get involved in the business, then I think they are absolutely going to thrive. Mm. Okay. Well, what a salient point on which to end. Um, thank you so much, both of you, for coming in. It's really, really, really great of you to do so. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to check out our back catalogue online on iTunes or on the NMA website. Um, until next week, I've been Ollie Smith. These guys have been Chris Budd and Peter Trotman. So thanks so much for being with us and uh, join us next time. Thanks and goodbye. <laughs>